From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with congressional candidate Jazari Kual Zakaria. The things that I'm championing and the things that I'm running on um, and the issues, they affect me directly as a person too, as well as so many people in my community. I've participated in homeless relief efforts and hunger relief efforts and trying to address food insecurity. So there's a lot of things that I've actively done to show that, hey, like I have a track record of actually doing this stuff. Whether there was a camera, whether there was not a camera, whether this was this or that, whether I was getting paid or not, these people who say that they stand for these types of things or stand for those types of things, are they advocating for those things when they're not being paid to advocate for those things? Or if it's not just to continue building on their resume or make them look good for a photo op? That's the real question. Zachariah talks about his upbringing, the formation of his worldview, and his vision for Nebraska and the country at large. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. What are you doing on April 14th? Come out to the Council Bluffs Public Library Foundation Speaker Series, where I will be in conversation with author Eric Larson. Eric Larson is the author of eight books, six of which became New York Times bestsellers, including The Splendid and the Vile, The Devil in the White City, and his latest work is an audiobook called No One Goes Alone. Join me for an evening with Eric Larson in the Council Bluffs Public Library Speaker Series, April 14th at 7 o'clock. There's also a book signing after the event. Tickets are available now. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Jazari Kual Zakaria, who's in the middle of a congressional campaign to represent Nebraska's first congressional district in the House of Representatives. Zakaria is a student at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and a founder of LNK Freges, an initiative to provide free fresh food to underserved people in Lincoln. This conversation was recorded before Representative Jeff Fortenberry resigned from his role as a member of Congress after being found guilty of three felonies. You are somebody who in several ways sort of does not fit the typical mold, in one part because you're not an old white guy, you're not uh, like an old lawyer is one of the other things often. You're somebody who is young, who's getting established, who has a different family background, and I imagine... Sort of uh, the way that your worldview was shaped of how American politics works is a little bit different than a lot of the people who are in there already. So, I mean, when when your parents came to America, I wonder, before we even get to you and how you came to see our system, did they have a conception of what our like our political system looks like? Were they uh, were they aware of that in their circumstances? Um, I think it's pretty much how you summed it up. They just thought it was just older um, Caucasian men who have a lot of money and influence and who are just older and have been there for a while. And so that's kind of just the same, the perception that they've had. It's just that stereotypical perception. And for a while, and I mean, they came over in 1995. So it was, that wasn't like now, today, it's, yeah, a little, just a tad more diverse than that. But back in like the 90s, you know, it it was, that's what it all was. Yeah. And I mean, oftentimes people feel excluded if they don't already fit into the mold or they don't have like a position of power uh, societally. Yeah. And so I imagine for your parents, it wasn't like a clear sign that one day they would have a kid who would be running for Congress. Yeah. <laughs> Well, so I mean, yeah. how, so you grew up in Lincoln, though. Uh, I mean, how did how did your political worldview start to shape from the Lincoln perspective? Well, I just thinking back on it, I just remember um, every time we 
watch the news or every time I saw a politician, it was somebody who didn't look like me. Um, and just growing up, we always, my mom always had the news on. She always had the news on. And to be like completely fair, just even, you know, as a eight, nine year old kid, like you just want to watch cartoons. You want to watch Disney channel, things like that. I'm just like, why do we always have to watch the news? <laughs> and she was like, because you need to know what's going on in the world. And so then, you know, I got into it more. I started seeing more of like the reporting and things and kind of early, early on, that's when I de developed like this, you know, um, likeness of journalism, you know, and seeing all these news anchors and things like that. So a lot of my childhood memories, you know, come from seeing historical moments. I, I vividly remember the day that Obama um, was announced the president-elect. I was laying on the living room floor. We were up all day. Um, I was at school, you know, like thinking, how is this going to play out? I just remember like kind of seeing the campaign here and there, but election night was so vivid. And I, I remember when they announced it and his Wolf Blitzer on CNN announced um, their CNN's projection and just hearing my mom scream, like just everybody's just like yelling and screaming in joy. And then, you know, my mom started calling everybody that she knew. And it was just one of those moments where it's like, we never thought we would see that. Um, because, you know, especially when uh, Africans, particularly Sudanese, South Sudanese, because, you know, that's where my family was from. Um, it, it's just America is just thought of just to be a lot of just white people, you know, and that's that's what it is that's what's represented um you get to america to just be able to have safety and to get a job and to make a little bit of money you're not expected to go to america and get into politics and get involved and become a change maker or a lawmaker that's not something that's aspired um the most that is aspired is to just get to america and be able to you know make, get a good job whether that's production work whether that's you know construction work or, you know, get to America, go to school, maybe get an office job and be able to send money back home. Like that's that's the that's the pinnacle of it for a lot of people. And so kind of from that that on, you know, I remember seeing Obama's photo on there, seeing, you know, the live footage of a watch party they were having in Kenya and knowing that we have family members that live in Kenya and just kind of, you know, thinking like, wow, like this is possible for somebody who looks like me. And so then I remember, you know, in high school, in my government and politics class, we learned about how you become a congressman or congresswoman. Um, and I remember thinking like, wow, like they make it seem a lot harder than it is. You know, you gotta be 25 years old, a citizen for seven years um, and live in the district you wanna represent. Like I could do that someday, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> if Obama could become president, I could become a congressman. And so, um, you know, I, and I kind of just, you know, followed the, content creation world um, and journalism world up until, you know, 2020, when I saw our communities hurting and what kind of representation we had in our communities. And when I say our communities, I mean, just everyone who's not a part of that upper class, you know, and our communities hurting in the sense of COVID, right? Our communities hurting in the sense of college students not able to afford their education or, you know, go knee deep in student loans. Our communities hurting as Black people being out there protesting against police brutality. And that's kind of when I thought of it um, again, but it really dawned on me that I, this is something I should, you should at least try. 
Well, um, it's interesting. In January of 2021. It's interesting that it starts for you, though, as a concept when you were young, when it became a possibility. It sounds like the seeds were there and maybe it just mm-hmm. took the right context for it all to sort of become a, an imperative of something you really had to you know, pursue. Um, yeah. I often suspect that Americans are the worst judges of how effective our system of representation can be. Because we're, we're sort of told our whole lives uh, that it's not only the best system in the world, but it has this kind of divine inspiration from this magical constitution that's so sacred we can't consider changing it, even though we have dozens of times. So, I mean, do you think your parents coming from a country, coming from kind of a precarious place that they came from, do you, do you think that that gave you a different perspective on America, on how our systems work that you might not have had otherwise? I think so, yeah. Yeah, just seeing what they came from and the government that they came from at the time, I would say so, yeah. Like, what are some of the ways that that manifests? How do you see America uh, through that lens? Back where they're from, um, back in South Sudan, it is hard to get into the government. It's Everything is by presidential decree. Every governor is appointed. Um, every Everyone is, you know, appointed and put in place by the president or put in place by someone the president put in place there's not really like a free and fair election like here. And so even then it's hard to even aspire to, to be a change maker in your community or do things on, you know, on a, on a, um, a governmental level to make change. And so I kind of just look at the experience and the chances that they had and realize this is something I can't like sleep on. So um, getting involved and wanting to be the change maker you see over there, you can't really, you you can't make change in countries like that, it seems like, um, based on historical data and how things are going right now. But, you know, America, you see these underdogs, quote, underdogs, people who don't fit the, the conventional mold of what a politician is, just being the change maker they want to see and then having the community support behind them. And so, yeah. And so when you're in Lincoln uh, growing up for at least the last, what, 15 or so years, Jeff Fortenberry has been your representative in the House. And so I wonder, yeah. have, have you felt, has he made an impact in those 15 years as your representative? Have you felt represented, represented by him over that time? Absolutely not. I have never seen or met Jeff Fortenberry in person, ever. Um, and the interesting thing is, you know, there's a huge Sudanese population in Lincoln and Nebraska has one of the largest Sudanese, Sudanese and South Sudanese populations in the country. And our community, our Sudanese community here, I don't think he's ever reached out to us. He's never, you know, come out when there's an event happening that's affecting Sudanese and South Sudanese people. He's never been present. And I don't think that he cares to represent us because we're such a minority and such a small part of the population that I don't think he cares about our votes. He just has to appeal to the masses or his base because I feel like he thinks that we can't make a difference because no matter what, it's just like, oh, like, what are they? This small percentage of the vote, does it really matter? And plus, just kind of looking at the things that he he believes in and the things that he champions, he just doesn't have a clue what it's like to be an immigrant or a refugee in this country. Um, or be a minority. And I don't think he cares to know. Because had he cared to know, you know, you're, you've been a representative for 15 years, and you've never reached out or spoken, or got involved with different ethnic backgrounds, especially when your state has the largest population of a specific ethnic group, 
That's wild. So that's insane. <laughs> I mean, how does someone like him both not represent a large portion of his constituency? And I mean, what do you attribute the fact that he kept getting reelected? Why why has he been so successful at running for the House? Maybe not in the representative, the representation itself. Um, probably because he has access to, you know, so much fundraising. Um, I guess who I mean, I mean, whoever I guess he uh, appeals to or whoever is funding his campaign, like he's just concerned about those people. And plus, we're like, there's often this narrative like, oh, we can't make a change. Like my vote doesn't matter. So a lot of people don't go out and vote, but his base goes out and votes. And so that's how he keeps getting in there because he keeps appealing to a large demographic. And sometimes, you know, I think of his base that he he appeases to, I don't think they are very in tuned of what he, how he votes and what he does. I think he just says all the right things to captivate a certain audience. And I don't know if he necessarily believes in the things that he is saying to captivate said audience. So for instance, I'll give you an example. Um, there is a, um, a Sudanese man that I know um, who has known me since I was young. Um, and he was talking about how, you know, like Democrats are bad and Republicans are good and Republicans always look out for the interests of, you know, um, people uh, of color and minorities and immigrants. And I told him, I was like, I don't think that's necessarily true um, to a certain extent, because, yeah, you might have people who are out there who are really concerned about all Americans, regardless of how your skin color looks or your ethnic background. But there are those people like Jeff Fortenberry, who I don't think does. And so, for instance, I told him, I was like, well, you, you know, you hurt from COVID, right? There's COVID relief that you could have got. You know that Jeff Fortenberry voted against like the COVID relief that we could have gotten, right? And he just wasn't, he was like, no, that's not true. So I pulled up the votes, how to vote, uh, the House voting records and showed him. And he still was just kind of in denial. So I'm just like, uh, this is why it's important to be an informed voter because sometimes people don't know who or what they're voting for. They kind of just vote with a party that, you know, plays to and says the right things to get their vote and captivate that audience. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Jazari Kuwal Zakaria, who is currently running to represent Nebraska's first congressional district in the House of Representatives. Join the conversation on social media or call in with what Omaha issue is on your mind in a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. Yeah, this is something I've I've noticed a lot living in Nebraska, which is there are a lot of people who are happy to sort of be blindly loyal to a party. And mm-hmm. that seems to be the bar, uh, not necessarily behavior, votes, etc. It's just sort of like, well, you, you represent... Uh, this party's interest, therefore, I guess I'm fine with whatever you do. And that seems to be one of the biggest problems in trying to change the system because it's pretty easy to continue to just vote based on kind of the sports-like mentality of, I like this party, these par- these guys are the bad guys, I'm the good guys, that's it, that's my whole thought process, right? And mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know how you really do get past that. It seems difficult, and maybe I'm just jaded because Nebraska in particular, uh, I've, I've talked to a lot of people who have not gotten elected who seem to be trying to break out of that mentality. So, I mean, what do you think? Is there, is there a way out of people, uh, or at least a way to inspire people to be more individual thinkers and to judge based on merits of individuality, not just party? That's the thing. Like you said, it's extremely hard to break out of that, um, but... It's holding people accountable and seeing the, uh, seeing their actions. 
Um, like Fortenberry now is indicted on federal charges. That hasn't happened in a while for a U.S. congressman. And that's a big deal. Like accepting tens of thousands of dollars from a foreign entity then lying about it. If he felt so comfortable that he could lie to the FBI and expect to get away with it, what has he been lying to us, his constituents in his district about? That's the hard thing, you know, breaking out that mold and it's kind of just shining a spotlight to things and holding people accountable and making sure people know what the representative is doing and how they're acting. And we have to call them out on it all the time because after a while, when you see like a trend of, oh, you're saying these things just to get elected, but you're doing another thing. It's like a whole bait and switch situation that we constantly see over and over. Putting a spotlight on that and making sure people are aware of that and informed voters, then I think that's how we make the change. But like you said, there's a lot of people who run for office and a lot of people who end up feeling jaded in a way. Um, And then we lose people because either A, they decide not to run again, um, or B, they decide um, that Nebraska is not for them and it's not going to change. Like, why am I going to waste my time and my life here when I can go to a place that's better than my experience here? Yeah, I mean, for for an example here, uh, I know there was a poll that just came out where Fortenberry was still beating his primary challenger, Mike Flood, despite this federal indictment, despite some of his, you know, his legacy before this was something where he tried to get a UNL professor fired for liking a tweet of a picture of him with googly eyes. You know, there's, it's not necessarily this, this record that's so hard to go up against. And yet he is still winning in the polls for the Republican candidacy. And so I guess sometimes I wonder what exactly are the standards, if any, that the average Nebraskan has for its representatives? And I don't have a good answer for that. Do you? See, that's the thing. I, I saw that exact post you watch, you're, you're talking about, um, and I think it was a story, uh, the Nebraska Examiner did a story on it. Shout out to the journalists. I would just want to put that out there. Flatwater Free Press, um, <laughs> Nebraska Examiner, Nebraska needs journalists. Um, I support that, <laughs> having a journalist background myself. Um, but uh, what, what oh, to, to, to um, answer that, I think it's just the way he's behaving. Like if you see me attack ads that he's putting out against Mike Flood, talking about, oh, he voted to give this to illegal immigrants, that to illegal immigrants, there's a bunch of fear mongering. And so I think people would be like, oh, well, I, I think I would rather accept a candidate who you know took in some money from a foreign entity versus a candidate who's giving my tax dollars to illegal immigrants and and just twisting the narrative and fear-mongering and things like that but yeah no it's tough (laughs) it's very hard (laughs) well yeah it's it's a situation where it seems uh pretty easy to get away from needing to talk about anything that's real really because if you just pick the scary words the scary words do a lot more work than a conversation about policy and yeah. I, I, it's, it worries me sometimes when policy is not really even a focus of a lot of our campaigns, which happens a lot in congressional campaigns. So, I mean, when you are entering this, you've got to know that the more successful you are, the more scary words are going to come at you, right? Maybe even more so than actual challenges to anything you propose. Okay. So, like, is that something you strategize about or try to think about how to maybe break through so that's not the dominating sort of a, a line of attack that you have to deal with? I, I, st- I feel I don't feel like there's much they could attack me on because like not only do I talk the talk like I walk the walk the things that I'm championing championing and the things that I'm running on um, and the issues not o- they affect me directly as a person too as well as so many people in my community and there are things that I've tried to do things about for instance like homelessness and food insecurity I've participated in um, homeless relief efforts and hunger relief efforts and trying to address food insecurity 
and scarcity in our communities. So there's a lot of things that I've actively done to show that, hey, like I have a track record of actually doing this stuff, whether there was a camera, whether there was not a camera, whether this was this or that, whether I was getting paid or not. Um, I've been actively trying to help out the community in, in various and creative ways. The, the question then becomes, it's like these people who say that they stand for the, these types of things or stand for those types of things, are they advocating for those things when they're not being paid to advocate for those things? Or if it's not just to continue building on their resume or make them look good for a photo op? That's the real question. Because a lot of these people have like these talking points, right? So they have these talking points um, of things that don't affect them personally or not even in their reality. So people are taking my reality and my experience as, you know, a young millennial in, you know, the world today and, and, and a, a child of immigrants in the world today and a black man in the world today and using those as things that they can run on or using things for talking points out of that experience. And so I'm using my own experience for my talking points. And I feel like that's just much more real than anything that a consultant can write or manufacture for a candidate. So one of the big issues on your site is Medicare for All um, as a mm-hmm. proposal. And to kind of connect this to what we were talking about in terms of how an issue gets clouded and maybe how you would go about addressing it is we had a candidate uh, in the 2nd Congressional District, Kari Eastman, who ran on that. Uh, and it was sort of the okay. defining issue for her campaign. Her mother's illness was sort of the driving force for her to get into politics in the first place. And her opponent... Mm-hmm. Don Bacon responded by sending out flyers with an image of a burning city that said, Comrade Kara will destroy America. And he won decisively here, which I don't know if that just suggests that propaganda works or if Nebraska voters would rather continue to pay more for health care year after year than consider modeling systems, uh, you know, modeling a system off of one of the other countries that has universal health care. So, I mean, okay. it's a question both of like, how do you sh- maybe shift mentalities and then how do you enter the waters of Nebraska politics, which sometimes can be anti-change to the point of not even really acknowledging the hardships, right? You talk a lot about the pain people are going through, and it's almost like you have to convince them to do something about that pain, right? <laughs> what yeah, do you do what was that? the exact question? Because there was a couple in there. <laughs> yeah, no, just, I mean, in general, I mean, so, okay, Medicare for all. Let's talk about the, the, the roadmap there. So first of all, what's your pitch for Medicare for all? First off, there's, there are different ways that we can address that, right? So when they talk about Medicare for all, this is going to increase our taxes. Nobody wants their taxes to be increased, right? And so I also have kind of um, some ideas of how we can give a true tax break to working class and middle class Americans. But Medicare for all and things like there, that there are like pharmaceutical drugs and things that are being skyrocketed. And so there are different ways that we can attack that, right? So instead of charging hundreds of dollars for insulin, there could be a way to address that. And so that way, we're not just increasing taxes and shelling out all of this money to cover everybody's health care. And then still, you know, pharmaceutical companies and things like that can continue increasing prices. So there are different ways to kind of attack this to make sure that it works in a way, um, instead of kind of just leaving everything as it is, increasing everybody's taxes and having people have it like all be, you know, covered through Medicare. But um yeah, there's there's multiple ways, and and that's just one part of it. The entire thing, when you look at the healthcare system, and pharmaceuticals, and drugs, and medicine, there are different avenues and ways that we can make it all work. 
but it it comes on multiple multiple fronts. So the Medicare is just one, and then also making sure we're looking at pharmaceutical companies and like why are we why are we charging hundreds of dollars for insulin that cost is only X amount to make, which is so much lower, and making sure that we are addressing those issues and figuring out how we can creatively attack those as well. Well, so you know I don't know what your experience with healthcare has been like. I know there's this imaginary idea that so much of America loves dealing with their health insurance. Uh, I personally have struggled with it. I don't go to the doctor very much. There were several years where I couldn't afford to get any kind of treatment at all, even though I was, you know, I had a degree, I had a job, and it was still just prohibitively expensive for me. So, like, to me growing up, it seems like for a lot of people, it doesn't seem like a particularly safe system we're entering into, right? It seems sort of scary and, like, it's more, it seems like something that could be changed and maybe should be changed but then you got to figure out how to sell that, right? So immediately this gets turned into like, well, you're a socialist or Don Bacon calls people comrades if they want affordable health care, right? So, I mean, like, how, do, how do you then pitch this to voters who might be uh, afraid of maybe the connotations that they've been trained to be afraid of when Medicare for all comes up and scary words like socialism start to pop up? Well, then I guess the question is, how are we going to like, do we just just sit here and do nothing while people are actively dying because they can't afford the health care? I mean, they can't afford the treatment and the medicine they need. Like, for instance, you you talked about um, your experience with health care. Like, from the time I was, I'll, I'll give you an example of what happened to me. When I was um, 18, I got a job at Walmart um, as an overnight stalker making nine twenty five. I got dropped out of Medicare. Medicare. Um, because I was making over the threshold at the time. And here I am, this 18-year-old kid, like I you know, didn't know too much about it. Um, all I know is that we had Medicaid growing up my entire life um, and because we lived under the poverty line. And so then from that time, it was from when I was 18 until I was, what, 22 that I didn't have health care. And I got a job at Nelnet and I finally was able to get health care through Nelnet only for free, actually, only because I met all the biometrics to be quote healthy. So like your the weight has to be a certain per, uh, between a certain amount, your body fat percentage has to be a certain amount, your blood sugar levels, all of this stuff, like your blood pressure all had to fall within a certain range. And then, you know, the company would pay your premium. Plus you had to be a non-smoker. And so that was the only time that I was able to get health insurance. And even if I was able to afford it, or even if I wasn't able to um, get it, the premium paid for by my employer, I would have to pay for it if I wanted it. And then even then I wouldn't be making a livable wage. So it's like, would it even be worth it? And so you see a lot of people my age and stuff like that talking about how they just can't afford healthcare. And if they get sick, they can't go to the, they can't afford the doctor. So they're, they're just going to die instead. Is that a good mentality to have? Or should we address it to where we're not having our fellow Americans falling sick and not affording the health care they need? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, this, this is where I get stuck because we yeah. get into this question of, it seems like we're sort of just rejecting real problems in favor of culture war because it's sort of like, yes, this is real pain. Yes, this affects me, but I'm not mm-hmm. going to do a thing that Democrats like is a lot of the, the discourse in Nebraska. And that's the issue. Like when you look at these, like a lot of these politicians are, somebody said it best on Twitter the other day, they're more so just these reality show politicians. When things hit the fan and problems get real, they don't want to address it and they don't want to fix it. 
And the issue is this, they, if the problems are fixed, what else do they have to run on? And so I think that's why you see these people getting into this culture war, because it's just like that gives them that continued fire to keep going. I'm talking with Jazari Kowal Zakaria, who is currently running to represent Nebraska's first congressional district in the House of Representatives. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. Riverside Chats is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong, bringing you the unique perspectives, personalities, and topics you love. Click the listener support link in the podcast notes for this episode to learn more. Hi, this is Cindy Maxwell-Ostick, and I'm an independent running for Nebraska legislature here in District 4, which is West Omaha. And I had seen on Instagram a call to uh, ask what we think that Congress should be accomplishing. And I was just really intrigued by that question. I do have very strong feelings that our uh, representatives should be passing the Voting Rights Act. It's something when I talk to voters here, uh, they are very concerned about the integrity of our elections and how it is conducted. And I'm very concerned that we have our voting rights taken seriously and also expanded to make sure that everybody who is eligible is uh, free from any barriers to participate. So I just wanted to let you know that those are some of the things I'm very concerned about. Again, my name is Cindy Maxwell-Ostig. Thank you. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. And please leave us a review or call in with what Omaha issue is on your mind in a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. I'm talking with Jazari Kowal Zakaria, who is running to represent Nebraska's first congressional district in the House of Representatives. Here's the rest of our conversation. And do you think that issues like health care, some of the other issues on your site, we have climate change, uh, social mm-hmm. justice, veteran support, criminal justice reform. I mean, it, it, there always seems to be kind of a divide between the young and the old as far as what cultural reforms young people want versus what cultural reforms old people don't want. So, I mean, do you yeah. see a tide changing? Is there maybe momentum now that there wasn't, say, in the 90s when your parents came here? I would say so, yeah. Um And reason being for number one, we're exposed to so much more with social media. Before back in those days in what, 1995, you got your news from the paper and you got your news from, you know, the news, the night news. And that's all you saw. There wasn't Facebook, there wasn't Twitter, there weren't things going viral that somebody recorded on their phone. There weren't these stories that were being widely shared and spread. You only got your news from the news, not any other site. And so seeing what people go through versus a better way to put this is, you know, if you're in small town Nebraska and you're surrounded by the same things every day, you're not going to see what's, you don't know what's happening, you know, in the next state over or on the edge of the state or the more urban, urbanized parts of the state. But now with social media, you see the other issues that people are going through um, and you're exposed to a lot more. And so, yeah, I think the tides are changing. And another thing is the subcoming generation and people in my age group are a lot more energized to go out and make the change um, that we want to see. And so, you see more people getting involved um, with different programs, doing more things in their city to organize, running for office, actually trying to get out people to go out and vote and becoming educated on things because we're exposed to so much. And so I feel like 
you know, the younger generation doesn't want to inherit a world that is completely broken apart by policies and um, old old time thinking to the point where people are now trying to get more involved to bring those changes. So let's talk about one of those worlds that we're inheriting, which uh, the big one, the first one on your site is climate change, which as yeah. far as I can tell, uh, a lot of our representatives like Fortenberry in particular sort of ridicule the concept of any kind of legislation that would decrease carbon emissions, methane emissions, uh, curb mm-hmm. pollution of water or industrial farming, all of these things yeah. that contribute to the collapse of our ecosystems, which is sort of happening already. It's not necessarily this threat that will happen someday. And yeah. so I don't know. This is an issue where I, it's really hard for me to feel optimistic on Nebraska addressing what feels very apocalyptic. Uh, how do you how do you go about that? Is is this something that uh, that we can change? Will it take more disasters? What is it that's going to get Nebraska to wake up? Or I guess to use Adam Adam McKay's metaphor to just look up. Yeah, um, I honestly think is just showing people the changes that are happening and what's happening to our climate. So, for instance, Fortenberry um, likes to say that he cares so much about agriculture and all this type of stuff. Do you guys remember in 2019 when there were the devastating floods that wiped out all that farmland Mm -hmm. and destroyed? That was a result of climate change. Looking here um, last winter, a couple winters ago, when we had to have scheduled power outages to reroute power to Texas, that was affecting us directly here. You know, so um, even farmers now that I've, I've spoken to some that would talk about how like the entire harvesting season is thrown out of whack because the rain, because, you know, the seasons aren't changing how they normally do. Um, and just looking at the data from it, they don't come with actual, when you look at the people who are saying that climate change isn't real, I don't think they're coming with actual statistical data and looking and saying, hey, like here from the scientific historical data, these are the trends we're following. And so this is not like a real thing. They're just straight up saying, oh, this is not a real thing. This is like a woke thing and blah, 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 X, Y, Z. And this is just how the earth operates. No, it's not. <laughs> things are not normal of what is happening. And just showing people the facts and things like that. And so I feel like when I talk about that, do you remember, like when I tell people, do you remember the scheduled power outages that we had? That was because another, the climate was affecting another area. So we had to help that area. And people are like, oh, yeah, I do remember that. Okay, so now what are we going to like do about it, you know? And so I think people just kind of um, see these freak accidents and they're just like, wow, that's crazy. I've never seen nothing like that. And then they just, you know, move on about it. And it's just going to keep getting worse unless it's addressed. You're going to see much, um, this, you're going to see the seasons change a lot more, like the tornadoes that happen in December. There's, there's going to be a lot more and it's going to keep happening worse. And I don't think it's going to, change unless we get the correct leadership in there to make the change. So what what kind of proposals would you have or what would you support that already exists that would address the climate, uh, climate change, climate disaster, whichever element of it? We need the proper infrastructure. And so the issue is that we can't just completely transfer over to renewable energy. So what we need to do is upgrade our infrastructure to handle that clean and renewable energy. Um, even just, there's just some ideas that I have. It's like, why don't we have solar panels on all the school roofs? Why isn't that a thing? You know, just there's just things that can be actively done in upgrading our infrastructure and our grids to be able to handle, you know, the... Um, to handle clean, renewable energy and to house it too and store it in the form of like batteries and stuff. And so I'm for reducing carbon emissions um, and trying to build our infrastructure 
and and invest in our infrastructure to transfer over to cleaner renewable energy. People like Mike Flood want to ramp up production. If I remember reading correctly on his website, like, oh, we need to capitalize on oil and gas and they want to stop this oil and gas production. But okay, and and saying that's going to take away jobs. But why don't we like put more invest more in our infrastructure for renewable energy and have that create, you know, clean, clean energy jobs for people? Well, I mean, I just talked, I interviewed somebody who's talking about Omaha's plan and really Nebraska's plan to be carbon neutral by 2050. And it's one of these things where, first of all, I didn't really know Nebraska took it seriously enough to get there. Uh, but there's also just sort of this, this gloominess, this sort of eerie feeling of, I don't know, is it, is it, are we so stuck in the dumb battles about these issues where we have a lot of the technology, but we don't have the messaging that's effectively leading to solutions? You know, is it going to be too little too late? Do you feel hopeful about our ability to have a livable climate in the future if we get the right legislation in place soon? Yes, I do. But it's only going to take getting the right people in the right places to make that change happen. And that, that's a whole community thing. I mean, that's getting people out to vote, getting behind candidates who are passionate about making these changes. Um, because the, the problem when you look at it is the people in Congress right now, just looking at from, you know, life expectancy, they're not going to be around to see the devastating effects of their of them dragging their feet today. So people like Fortenberry and, you know, stuff like that and Mitch McConnell or all these, you know, all these politicians who don't think that climate change is a real thing and X, Y, Z, they're not going to live to see the devastating effects that it's going to cause and their stubbornness and what that's what that's going to what price we're going to have to pay. I'm going to be around to see that. My kids are going to be around to see that. If you have kids, your kids and your grandkids are going to be around to see that. And so what I think they're more concerned about is just making sure that they line their pockets, make their bank accounts bigger so that they can shield themselves and their, you know, their family in the future from that. But it's not going to happen. Like the climate crisis is going to affect every single person. And so, like I said, I do feel hopeful, um, but it's only if we, we get the right people and the right changes. And like you said, even it could be, it, it'll be too little too late in, in any way you look at it, because I mean, there are already going to be, even if we completely address climate change today, right now, we're still going to be seeing the effects of it. Um, but we don't want to be in a position where we're, the, we're completely, completely ruined and doomed from it. So for instance, there are some countries that are islands that are going to disappear from rising sea levels and that's going to cause climate refugees. And that's happening today. Um, and making sure that we are prepared to handle all of that when it comes head on. So my thing is trying to be in a position where we can put things in place to shield us from going, getting in way too deep, getting deeper than we already have been. Well, and as far as climate refugees or really anybody going through hardship, one of the other major issues you have on your site is housing and food as a human right. And I think that uh, we see this tension in our society between people who have the view that you have and people who feel like, yeah, just get a job, figure it out yourself, right? This sort of like pull, it off, pull, pull yourself up by your bootstraps mythology. Uh, so, I mean, what, what's your take on what is it that's stopping people from having housing and food who are maybe trying to? What could it look like with legislation in the future? Um, I think that like, that depends on like expanding um, like SNAP benefits and things like that, um, making sure that there's funding in place and states are getting the help they need. 
um, so that they can address these issues. There are underlying issues to like homelessness, right? It's not just somebody's lazy and they don't want to get a job. There are underlying issues. Sometimes it's mental health issues. Um, when all the, I see all the time every day, there's always people who are out on the street saying, I'm a former veteran, right? Um, and I'm homeless. Some veterans aren't getting the benefits that they were promised. So making sure that that is addressed and that's taken on, putting into putting legislation in that really protects those people. And that's what I mean by veteran support. There are people who've gone to war, come back, suffer from PTSD or things like that. And, you know, they end up kind of going downhill from there. They're not getting the support they need and the things that they were promised when they come back. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Jazari Kual Zakaria, who is currently running to represent Nebraska's first congressional district in the House of Representatives. Join the conversation on social media or call in with what Omaha issue is on your mind this week in a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. Why do you think it's a struggle to have housing and food as a human right? Like, for example, even just this idea that somebody who doesn't have a job Basically, they, there's almost this sense that, like, they don't even deserve to, to have enough to survive, right? That, like, somehow unless you're working, uh, your human worth is really depleted down to almost nothing. Like, it's kind of a weird – it's a weird thing that's baked into our sort of economic assumptions. You know, it, it just comes down to just people's, like, hearts at the end of the day. Like, sometimes people will not change unless something affects them. You know what I mean? Like, we're all one bad thing away from ending up on the street, to be honest and quite frank. Like, I could get hit by a bus, you know, walking across the street tomorrow when I have the right of way. And that could put me in a position to where it's like, uh, if I end up, you know, being handicapped and I can't work and I have to fight for benefits and things like that, that puts me in a position. It's sometimes people end up losing everything from one accident. That doesn't mean that they're not human, they're worthless. Sometimes things happen to people and it's completely out of their control. And so they don't deserve to be just cast aside as like, you know, less than human. Another issue is criminal justice reform. And so I wonder how, how does that look? What is your vision for how we could change the criminal justice system? Well, last semester, last year, I learned about just different laws that are affecting, um, children and women and people of color specifically and making sure that we have legislation that protects those people for instance i don't know if you knew but like in some states there are laws in place that if a woman has a miscarriage she could be charged for murder and serve time for that there are sometimes kids um are tried as adults and unfair making sure that we have legislation that protects these people in these extraordinary situations. I mean, if a woman has a miscarriage, how is that like her fault? If she did everything correctly, her body just could not handle the pregnancy. That doesn't mean she murdered the baby. Her body just couldn't, couldn't handle it. And for instance, like kids too, um, there are some, like there are stories out there where kids who were attacked or things like that are taken advantage of. I don't think we need to go into deeper into what I mean by taking advantage of, but they stand up for themselves and then they end up, ends up serving life in prison or their whole lives are thrown away in prison. And just making sure that we're not, we're looking at these situations and these circumstances and making sure that we have legislation in place that isn't inhumane and unfair treatment. 
Well, so one of the things that can be difficult when you get elected is, right, you end up in this body uh, that is largely gridlocked or oftentimes there's not sort of like these super majorities. Oftentimes there's not even a yeah. lot of bills that get brought up, right? It's sort of a couple bills here and there um, if there's support from party leaders. And so, I mean, do you have a strategy or thought for the actual process where getting into Congress and being able to take some of the issues that really uh, are passionate that are that you are passionate about to turn them into legislation and then to make sure that they don't just sort of like stay stuck as this idea, right? Like how do you, how do you succeed when you actually get to the house? The thing I look at is what like congressmen and congresswomen, co- members of Congress, not only do they have an obligation to their district, but they also have an obligation to the American people. And so when you look at like for instance a congresswoman like AOC, she talks about these issues. And she talks about the legislation she's introducing and things like that to you know her audience online and people share that and people become aware. Once you start getting pressure from the people on their representative, they have to answer as to why they're not supporting this or why they're not doing this if it benefits people in their district or if it benefits their constituents. And so just making sure that the American people are well informed of the bills and laws that are coming because sometimes like people don't people don't know like what's going on in Congress. Sometimes people don't pay attention to it. But making sure that the American people are aware of what is going on and if, how their representative is representing them and if they're not representing them in the way that they need to be represented, then they need to vote that representative out. Do you think uh, AOC Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is she a model then for not only maybe some of the ideas you share, but she's also mm-hmm. trying to sort of bring a more contemporary approach to being a representative. Like you're saying, she sort of talks, tries to educate, doesn't try to seem distanced, uh, and is trying to bridge that gap, right? Because a lot of people feel not only maybe disconnected from politics, but like they can't understand the complexity yeah. of what's going on. Is she sort of a model for you then of how to try to bridge that gap to the average person? Yeah, I think so. And I I think it's because of just she's grew up exposed to the same things that I did. um, Right. As far as like social media and seeing what's going on um, and just the exposure of it. And I think that's why she's trying to bridge that gap to make sure other people are also exposed to the things and making sure they're aware of what is taking place in the federal government. And so I would say she's definitely an inspiration for me as far as not only some of the things that she is passionate about, but also just seeing a young person in Congress, you know, she was the youngest Congresswoman ever elected and that happened in my lifetime. Like that is super cool. And it makes it seem like it's not a thing that is a fairy tale or something that is so like distant or impossible for you. Um, Another person, he's a Republican, Madison Cawthorn. I mean, he got into Congress in 2020 when he was 25, you know, so kind of seeing that and like, okay, there's not a clear balance or a, there's not a good balance of representation, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, but I mean, our age group and our age range and people who are in touch with our reality and what's going on in the world today. As far as other issues then that are part of your reality that you want to bring to yeah. Congress, what, what are some of the ones we haven't talked about yet that you want to make sure people know about? Um, affordable college tuition. So I um, am a college student and I'll be graduating next spring. And so the interesting thing is that it will take have taken me a decade to finish an undergraduate degree. Granted, I'm going to be graduating with two degrees. But the thing is, is that I it's not because I wasn't smart or I you know didn't want to go to school. It was more so just because I couldn't afford it. 
And another thing is I used to work at Nelnet, which is a student loan servicing. And I spoke to so many people over the four years that I was there. Um, and I was in customer service. So I would, you know, take calls. Um, people would always ask about, is there any payment relief? I can't afford this student loan. I wish I knew, you know, what I was getting myself into, you know, or I was 18 years old when my parents kind of, you know, just signed off on this for me or kind of just told me just to sign off on it because I needed to go to school. And now they're stuck with tens of thousands, some even hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loans. And they're always looking for some type of payment relief. You look at the bill that just got killed on the Senate floor by, um, Senator Manchin, like in there was supposed to be a, a free community college, right? They don't want that. They don't want to wipe away student loan debt. My take on it is like, okay, if you guys don't want to do that, what can we do to make sure that we don't end up in the same position again 50 years from now, that we're not beating the same dead horse? So an, a creative way we can uh, address affordable college tuition for these public universities to not to put a cap on how much they're charging tuition and making sure that it is more in line with you know um the cost of living as you say uh, as they say because people online especially that older generation will be like you know well i paid for college on a part-time job and i paid for college without debt that's not possible right now that's not possible for a lot of people especially because our minimum wage isn't where it needs to be for somebody to live um, within their means or, you know, have a living wage. So making sure we're putting, looking at possibly putting a cap on what these public universities are charging. Um, because, I mean, if they keep, in, if tuition keeps increasing, you can get a federal loan to pay for that. And then here we are just ending more and more in federal loan debt. So making sure that these loans, they're going to come to a point where they're expired. Um, in the sense of, you know, over time, like they might get paid down or things like that, but making sure that we're not in the same position or even worse 50 years from now. Another thing um, that I want to address, um, and not just me, you know, there's other candidates that I've been in talks with about how we can get a true tax cut to the working class and the middle class in, um, in a way that's gonna help them recover after COVID, right? Um, and that's OT40, which means zero tax after 40. So making sure that people's overtime pay is protected. And so sometimes when people work a certain amount of overtime hours, they get bumped into another tax bracket. So they're taxed more harshly. Um, zero taxes after 40 hours. And that's really important here in Nebraska because we have a lot of people working at production jobs, meat packing plants, um, food manufacturers, and things like that that are working 55, 60, 65, 70 hours a week. Um, Making sure people's overtime pay is, uh, is protected. Healthcare workers, nurses who have been working, you know, 12, 15 hour days for the last two years. Um, service workers and waitresses and bartenders um, or waitresses uh, not being taxed federally on the tips that they make. We give all of these tax cuts to corporations and businesses um, and corporate lobbyists and things like that, but the American people, the working class and middle class haven't had a true tax cut that could help them recover. And I think that this would be a way to do that. Well, I appreciate both getting a sense of your vision, what could be, and then sort of how you got to be the person to have these ideas, to know you, your worldview. Uh, where can people go to get more involved or to learn whatever it is you are up to at any point in the campaign upcoming? Um, they can just go to jazariqual.com. And that links everything. So all the social media channels and things like that. 
Um, every single social media handle I have is just at Jazari Qual, <laughs> so it's super cohesive. Once you find one, then you'll find all the others. <laughs> well, great. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Jazari. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Riverside Chance is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos, and our artwork is done by Ben Matugowitz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today, and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock. <laughs>